Hey, everybody, and welcome to the HR Investigations Podcast. I'm Natalie Ivey, and I am really, really glad to be with you today. And I want to introduce a guest. His name is Jay Zweig, and Jay is with Ballard Spar in Phoenix, Arizona, and he is an attorney that is super knowledgeable about <laughs> all the stuff that drives us crazy in HR on a daily basis. And uh, Jay is going to visit with me today on the show, and we're really going to showcase Title VII and religious accommodation issues. And uh, I can tell you I've seen an uptick in my consulting practice and in my investigations around religious accommodation. So this is a very timely subject. Welcome to the HR Investigations Podcast, exploring the issues, challenges, strategies, and solutions. Sponsored by RPCHR and hosted by Natalie Ivey, an HR consultant, licensed PI, and author of the best-selling book, How to Conduct Internal Investigations, a Practical Guide for Human Resource Professionals. And now, here's Natalie. Now, before we really get into talking some shop um, and getting into some best practices, Jay, if you wouldn't mind, if you would just share with our listening audience just a little bit uh, about you, a little bit of a career bio, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the topic for our episode today. Natalie, thanks very much, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And thank you for bridging the gap between the ivory tower of employment law and the real world of the workplace. And it's very, very valuable to interact with consultants like you and clients who say, I know the U.S. Supreme Court just said this, but what about what's going on in my workplace across the country? What I do primarily and where we've interacted before is representing clients across the country. I'm based in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's where I'm licensed, but I'm with a national law firm, Ballard Spar, and we represent clients across the country from startup companies to professional practices to Fortune 50 companies in their hiring, firing, and accommodation issues that they have with employees and this Title Seven, it's been a very, very active statute for the Biden administration and the U.S. EEOC. And really, the theme of the administration and the people that the president has appointed to the EEOC and many of the judges that have been appointed is employees need to be accommodated whether it's a physical disability, whether it's a lifestyle issue, and one of those is religious accommodation. Like you, we've been seeing a real uptick in employees coming to their employers and saying, I want this time off. I want to be able to practice my religion. And the employers are now dealing with a revised standard that, interestingly, a conservative U.S. Supreme Court came out with. So I'll stop there and look forward to discussing this with you. Yeah, absolutely. So as I uh, want to just share with the audience, this is really bridging the gap between, as you said, the ivory tower of employment law and HR. You know, these days we're really joined almost at the hip. Um, you know, corporate counsel and and HR directors across the country 
we really have to have a lot of conversations, a lot more than we used to because of so many issues. Let's talk a little bit about some basic employer responsibilities under Title VII. So, Jay, when an employee expresses the need for one of those, what is the employer's obligation? The employer's obligation, first and foremost, is to recognize if they have 15 or more employees, they are covered by this federal statute. It's very broad. It dates back to the 1960s and the civil rights era. It has been amended many times, but the employee's first and foremost obligations, in my view, is to have an appropriate policy that reflects that they are an equal opportunity employer that HR consultants and or lawyers can draft. So it's an appropriate and updated policy. And then the second obligation is to train not just their HR staff, but their frontline supervisors on what that means and how if the supervisors do not react appropriately or they do something that does not accommodate or worse yet retaliates that it not only puts the company at risk but it also puts the owners of the company at risk and in many cases the supervisors themselves can be sued if they violate the civil rights law ah that's a very important point and sometimes what i find with managers especially in businesses that are small to medium size you often have business owners that have been around a long time. They understand their industries, uh, particularly if they're in a more industrial type of setting. And you know, HR will recommend policy changes or HR will recommend, oh, we need to really train our managers. Oh, well, that's too expensive. We're not going to do that. Or we don't need to waste the time on training our managers. What would you say to those business owners that say they think it's too expensive to train or they think it's a waste of time? Well, there's that old muffler commercial that says, pay me now or pay me later, but um, really more to the point, what happens if there's a charge that's filed either with the EEOC or with the state or local agency that enforces these laws is that one of the first things the agency is going to look at is low-hanging fruit to hold the employer responsible. And low-hanging fruit would be if you do not have an up-to-date policy and you do not have records that you have trained people demonstrated that you are committed to following the law, then that is going to really trigger the interest of the agency to A, dig deeper into the investigation, and B, if they do find a violation, to then impose some sanctions about years of training and years of reporting to the agency. Current matters I have the EEOC is saying, oh, you had a misstep here on the policy, training, and accommodation. We want you to report to us quarterly for the next four years. So having a once-a-year training, and there's so many options for training now, 
so many good desktop or even portable phone apps that employers can use. It's not like the old days where you had to herd people into a classroom or even all together on a Zoom call to do training. Right. And at, you're nodding your head. You you know this. Training should be something that is preventative and proactive. Yes, I completely agree. And um, in my organization, we've been around for 21 years, RPC. And one client we had, uh, it was not a religious discrimination case, but it, it was um, other protected characteristics that were implicated. And we uh, had to design the training for them to meet the contact hours in their EEOC consent decree. And that was four years in a row that we went in to train. But that was any individual in the organization that is in management and was supervising, and also those in HR or their corporate security or safety that would have to conduct investigations. And they required, in that case, 17 contact hours of training. So it was extraordinary. But it was also a, a significant case. That was in litigation for, for years and years and years. So um, I love the analogy here, pay me now or pay me later, all right? So for those of you in the listening audience, when you're working with your leadership and they say, oh, well, we don't really have time to do that or we don't have the money to do that, well, you really need to take Jay's advice. And also, you know, from where this consultant and PI is sitting, I have seen it firsthand how expensive it can be when you don't take these preventative measures, yeah. So now let's um, dig in on some specific behaviors that supervisors and managers should really be aware of that could equate to religious discrimination and harassment, of course, which is certainly a form of discrimination. Can you give a few examples, Jay, of what would certainly be some behaviors that would cross the line and create some potential liability for an employer? The ones that that we have seen in order of magnitude are really as follows. One someone requesting time off for a religious holiday or their Sabbath and that being denied. Mm -hmm. That would be one. The second would be some sort of negative comment, harassment, or disparaging remark related to someone's appearance whether it's a hairstyle or a head covering or something that that people are are doing for religious reasons and the third interestingly enough is when the employer or maybe unbeknownst to the employer a supervisor attempts to impose participation in some sort of religious activity or observance or prayer or something in the workplace, and that does not match with the employee's beliefs, and the employee believes that if they don't go along or they don't participate, there's a negative consequence for the employee. Those are the, the three that we see primarily. Are there others that, that you're seeing in your uptick on these things? Yeah, definitely the time off issue. I had a case with you know a young woman that just wanted to leave uh, a little bit early for a religious celebration. And it, it was not a very long period of time. It was uh, maybe two hours or something like that for a celebration. And uh, the employer just said no. The manager just flat out said no. And then, of course, it turned into an HR investigation and the manager was in the wrong. 
And from my perspective, one of the things that I see is that managers just don't get what I call the leadership light bulb to come on to really spot what they're doing. So one of the, the first things that I want to say to the listening audience is you have to teach your managers, don't just say no to employee requests. Don't just in the moment make a snap judgment and, you know, to <laughs> quote an attorney that I've worked with for many years, he says, let's pump the brakes just a little bit before we make a decision <laughs> and let's reach out to HR and then let's evaluate that. So if you can just get your supervisors to catch themselves when an employee is asking for something special, whether it's leaving early or some other request, even if they may not see that in the moment it's connected to religion or disability or something else that might be protected under the law, is just, again, pump the brakes and let's reach out to human resources and then let's evaluate what is at hand. And then at that point, you could have a back and forth discussion. Is that something that might be reasonable for the employer to actually grant it? With that said, let's kind of move on, Jay, and let's talk about what happens when, let's say, HR does get a complaint from an employee, maybe saying their manager refused to grant an accommodation, whether it's leaving early for a religious observance, a celebration, or a religious service, or something like that, or uh, a supervisor maybe uh, engaged in some harassment because of um, religious attire. What do you recommend as some of the first steps in launching an investigation from an attorney's point of view? It's a great question. And where things have changed in this area of religious accommodation with last year's or last term Supreme Court case, what HR and management should get in the mindset of is that this is about having an interactive process, much like you would if someone asked for a physical disability accommodation and they say, I can only stand for this many hours, or I need an ergonomic keyboard or something like that. I believe most of our clients are familiar now that you have to have a back and forth process. Tell us why you need that, or what's happening here, or we can't do that, but we could do this. And so it's called the interactive process in, in the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act context. And that's the current state of the art for religious accommodation, for time off, for observance, and the other matters that we've discussed, that the first thing that HR should do is say, what is the employee requesting and what are our alternatives aside from no? Because no used to be okay under the old Supreme Court standard if there was even a de minimis expense to the employer. So, for example, if I let you go early to get to your religious event, then I've got to pay someone else overtime or I've got to ask someone else to come in. That used to be enough to say, so we're not doing it no more. Now it's got to be a substantial expense. And although we don't have chapter and verse, I feel very confident that courts are going to say, the fact that you had to pay someone an extra half time for two hours to give a person a religious accommodation is going to create liability for you, employer, for not doing that. So 
again, to reflect here, what HR should do is say, what is the employee asking and what our reasonable options that we as a company can do? Excellent. Yeah, that's great. And I'll tell you, a lot of times um, they're relatively simple. You know, they're relatively simple accommodations. Now, it's one thing. I have uh, a client that works in the energy sector, and there was uh, an employee that requested to be off three weeks in a row uh, in celebration of Ramadan. And that really, they had a very, very difficult time with that. That was significant. But what they did do in that example, they even reached out to the individual's imam. They had a conversation. They took it one step further to say, look, this is what this employee is asking for. Help us to understand a little bit better. They reached out to identify with uh, what it was he was requesting um, with the time off, and they they came to a bit of a compromise over it. They weren't able to grant him the three weeks, but they understood the context of why he was asking for that length of time. Now, that was an extraordinary case, but I think that that's the essence of what I'd like our listening audience to recognize with our spotlight on this subject is that times they are changing. <laughs> and what we have done in the past with religious accommodations, as you said, it, it's now changing. And when employers are going to say no to these accommodations, your standard for proving that something is really a hardship is, is going to be a little bit more difficult. All right. So in this case, they really showed good faith uh, in wanting to work with this young man based on his religious faith and the time that he was asking off. You know, they couldn't grant him exactly what he wanted, but they kind of met him halfway and they did what they felt was reasonable in that circumstance. So I think the other um, issue that uh, I'd like to just talk about one more thing before uh, we wrap things up today is the issue around just defining religion. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that? Um, I've had some questions come up where individuals are stating that they really are following a particular religion and therefore they want a certain accommodation, whether it is for uh, wearing, let's say, facial hair or they ha uh, request a certain time off. But when the employer is, is wanting to engage with them, they may not want to disclose their religion or they may not necessarily specifically say they even have to define that. Can you clarify that a little bit more of kind of religion in the eyes of the law, Jay. It, absolutely. And it's a sincerely held belief that the employee practices. It's it's okay, unlike disability, where you would say, I don't want to start prying into what your exact medical issues are. I just need to know the accommodation. You could, again, approach this the same way. And Again, a very typical one is not the three weeks off, right? Because that would be mostly unpaid and most people can't afford that. But when someone says, look, I can't work on my Sabbath, the employer can say, when is your Sabbath? Mm -hmm. And okay, it's sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. Okay, so you cannot work during your Sabbath. And in your example, with a, an energy sector employer, they're probably 24-7, right? Yeah. So they can say, all right, well, we can accommodate. You don't work on your Sabbath, but sun doesn't go down until Friday at 6 p.m. And then you can be back here Saturday at 7 p.m. 
and there you go. We've we've accommodated you. But with regard to uh, a sincerely held belief, there are some cases where the employee is manipulative of that, right? I'll be religious when it's convenient. I I practice the Sabbath on Super Bowl Sunday, and I can't work on that Sunday because it's Super Bowl. That's one of those ones where I kind of use, and we're using all these triteisms, but hey, fool me once, you know, shame on you, right? But beyond that, I think where employers are coming around to is, and HR departments are there, we can't look at all these requests for accommodations like, oh, it's a scam. They just don't want to work the weekend. That may partially be true, but the employer doesn't want to get into, so do you go to church on your Sabbath? What do you do on your set? Like, folks, we don't have time for that. This is this is the accommodation we can do it or we can't do it, right? And part of it's going to depend on the operation and is it a substantial problem for the employer? It's a case-by-case basis. Um, And just to go on a little bit more, because I have seen the case you've talked about, my religion is I have to wear a beard. I need to wear a beard. Okay, but we can still have standards depending on how front-facing you are and safety reasons, is there can be standards that you still need to be appropriately groomed. You need to be professional in appearance. But what we cannot do, and I've had this come up, is say, well, look, we work in an industry where you're, we're sending you out to clients, and you're going to work at the client's work site maybe security or something like that. And our client says no beards. So we can't, you have to either shave or we don't have a job for you. That isn't going to work anymore. You know, that would be akin to the client saying, hey, we can't accept anyone fill in the protected class. You know, you as the as the employer aren't able to come back to your employee and say, sorry, our client told us we get to discriminate, that you're going to be held responsible for that. I've encountered that on uh, the safety side as well, but that's a little bit different because uh, I have a client, uh, in, again, in Houston, and the issue was facial hair, but they were in a very safety-sensitive position that required by OSHA that you have to have a seal, and you, you cannot have any chance that the seal could break because of the environment that they were working in. And so therefore you had, on the one hand, the young man was requesting the religious accommodation, but he was asking the employer to compromise the the workplace safety. And if he didn't have a tight seal on the respirator, it could be the loss of life. So that was a real, that was a real tricky one. But, um, you know, in the end, they really reached um, an impasse. There wasn't anything that the employer could do there. But with religious accommodations, I think that you hit on a great point. HR sometimes can become a little jaded. You know, we're we're sort of the uh, the central portal of all requests and managers' uh, irritations, and so sometimes what can happen is a bit of desensitization that the next employee who comes in requesting accommodation, oh well, here's another one. 
just like an FMLA request. Oh, here's another one who's trying to game the system that's getting over on us. We've got to be very, very careful with that in this context, as you said, since the Supreme Court case. And Jay, would you just share with our audience that case, the recent one that was the game changer? This was the the Supreme Court case that the Supreme Court said that you could not just lean on seniority or unfairness to other employees who didn't want to work all of the weekend shifts. And the Supreme Court said you exactly what you've been talking about, Natalie, is you need to take these on a case-by-case basis. And really, I think that's the most important takeaway from our discussion here, that the landscape has changed and it's critical for HR and employers to, as you say, pump the brakes and say, we can't say, sorry, this is unfair to your coworkers that they have to work all the Sundays. And we have a seniority system, we have a union contract, we have whatever it is. We now have to say as employers and HR and employers counsel, can we accommodate this individual without a substantial measurable cost. And if we can, then we're going to have to do it or it's going to end up as the Groff case did, which is remanded back for a trial on how much emotional distress, how much lost wages, how much attorney's fees, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars beyond what the employer already paid to get to the Supreme Court because they didn't want to say, sure, your Sabbath ends at 6 p.m., come in at 7. There you have it. And again, I realize from my ivory tower, it's easy for me to say that I'm not the supervisor who has to explain to the other employees, why does everyone else not get Super Bowl Sunday off or whatever it is? But that's just the landscape that we're in now. And it is difficult. So this kind of goes back to what we were discussing before with the complexity of what we just discussed. You really can't afford not to address this with your managers and provide uh, the training. So with three best practices for employers, I think we've definitely talked about the importance of policy and having a really good policy. The second thing is also training your managers. And then what would you say would be the third best practice to leave our listeners with, Jack? I think the third best practice is take the time to treat requests for accommodation on a case-by-case basis and just deal with the accommodation and not whether the employee really needs it or really believes in that religion. Because when you do, that's when these retaliation claims come up. And as as you know, and as most employers know, even if you get it right on there wasn't discrimination, if the employee raised a concern, asked for an accommodation, even if you were right on the underlying violation, if there's retaliation, you're going to lose on that. And we're seeing more and more retaliation cases. Those, again, are low-hanging fruit for the EEOC and employees' attorneys. So avoid retaliation by doing what you said and just 
take a pause and see if there can be accommodation. I would venture to say, based on our clients, most companies do not have compliant policies right now. Why? Because their policy was written under the old standard of substantial hardship. So they'll want to identify how to update their policies. And then your second point is spot on. Make sure to train people on the new standard. So those are the three takeaways. Well, I knew that this was going to be an excellent episode, and you definitely didn't disappoint, right? I really want to thank you for joining us today on the HR Investigations podcast, and I think our listening audience certainly got a lot out of today's episode. So thank you very much, Jay. And everybody else, I will see y'all next time. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Investigations podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and share the show with any colleagues who will benefit from our strategies and solutions. For free bonus resources, simply visit hr-investigations.com. And remember, if you'd like some help with improving your investigative skills, or if your organization is in need of an external investigator to help with the case, please get in touch with us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.